you have your Bibles, if you would open them to James chapter 5. As James brings his sermon in the form of a letter to a close, he deals with themes that he had first brought up in the introduction. Um, But there are some differences, as we saw. The two themes are that of patient perseverance, um, which at the beginning of the letter, he talks about being ambushed by all kinds of trials, trials of many kinds. Um, But here, the threat he has in mind is not from trials, but from within ourselves, and that is the impatient and hasty tongue. And then he talked about prayer, that if anybody lacks wisdom, they should ask God. Um, But now he talks about prayer in a different way, and that is praying for those in need, caring for those who are in need through prayer. To review what we looked at last week, we looked at the patient perseverance. Uh, And I would remind you that James was writing to people for whom patience was the last thing on their mind. If you look at the first part of chapter 5, he's talking about people not being paid. They're being ripped off by their bosses. And then James says, we need to be patient. It's like, well, you know, that's easy for you to say. You're not the one who was cheated The people to whom he is writing patience, I think, would be a most difficult task. And in many ways, a betrayal of their humanness. I have rights. I worked, I gave out X amount of labor, and I was promised X amount in return, and I wasn't given that, and you're asking me just to be patient? The call to patience, on James's part, is not some theoretical or abstract argument. it's very real that his first readers, yeah, for them to be patient would in fact require a work of grace. So after writing about the misuse of wealth, James then says, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. There's the imperative, the command, be patient. It's not like, yeah, if you feel like it, maybe you should be patient. It's like, it's a command, be patient. But then it's tempered by brothers. So it's not like he's sitting on a throne up above and sort of speaking down. He's speaking to people who are brothers in Christ, and he is calling on them to be patient. As we've seen, patience is not a passive activity. James tells us to do two things if we're going to be patient. To stand firm. One of the things that James has stressed throughout this letter is inconsistency being in two minds, discriminating between the rich and the poor, using your tongue for blessing as well as cursing, friendship with the world while being the people of God. Yeah, that's, la- that's not consistency. And so he calls on them to be consistent, to stand firm. Secondly, he says, do not grumble against each other. The call to be patient only makes sense when, in fact, there is a temptation to be impatient. One is tempted to lose his or her temper, to lose patience. Particularly, as James has it in mind, in relation to God's people. Because we have higher expectations of our brothers and sisters. And when they do something that is wrong, sinful, human, 
we are probably less likely to cut them some slack or like you know the pagans we expect them to be like that but you're a brother you're a sister why are you treating me this way and in verses 10 through 12 he writes about old testament saints who spoke in the name of the lord so we have the prophets in the old testament they were the mouthpieces of god they spoke the word of god to the people of god and what did they get in return suffered in the face of suffering you know it's not like they were talking to pagans who knew nothing about god they're speaking to people who are the people of god they're speaking the word of god they are men of god as prophets and instead they are abused by their listeners but it's interesting that he he singles out one particular person who we would not call a prophet, but he mentions Job by name as an example of patience, one who persevered. And at the end of the story, at the end of Job, we find, in fact, that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. But this is all tied up with something very particular, and that is the use of the tongue. It's the focus of the second point of his sermon, caring for others, that's those in need, that's the first point. The second is not using our tongues in the right way, not controlling our tongues. In the story of Job, this is also the problem. Um, When Job's friends came to comfort him, they sat with him for seven days and seven nights in what I've called the sacrament of silence. They're just silent. The trouble begins when they open their mouths. And the trouble with Job also begins when he opens his mouth. And what you have is a case of people who, in fact, are not controlling their tongues. For James, the issue is that of unadorned speech. You know, what I've said about Job, I don't think is necessarily what James had in mind. But he's going toward the point of unadorned speech. So if you look at verse number 12, here in James 5, Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or, or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, and you will be con- or you will be condemned. Years ago, I heard a speaker say that in his opinion, the third commandment, do not take the Lord's name in vain, was probably broken more on any given Sunday in many churches than it was in any bar anywhere. You know, we think, oh, you take God's name in vain, you're swearing, you're cursing. But if we have unadorned, you know, if we, we sort of frilly up our speech by using God's name, then in fact we are taking his name in vain. And James says, don't do that. Just let it be yes or let it be no. He says, if you don't, you in fact will be condemned. And having dealt with patience and perseverance, he also talks about coming judgment, at the, the coming judge, the Lord Jesus, and the judgment that will come. So in the first place, he says that those who have been ripped off by their bosses, should look forward with anticipation to the return of the Lord. That in fact, 
he will make all things right. On the other hand, those who are ripping people off, they should just be aware that the Lord comes back as a judge. And there will, in fact, be a price to be paid. In verses 7 through 12, which we looked at last week, there's a looking forward. We expect a coming Lord. The judge is at the door. That the Lord has finally brought about what he did in the life of Job. And that our tongues may, in fact, bring condemnation. If you put it all together, it's, it, there are two things. There is condemnation, but there's also compassion. That the God of all grace is one who forgives. Now we come to the second thing in the end of his sermon, his conclusion, and that is the matter of prayer. We should know by now, having gone through James as we have, that he is nothing if not practical. And so when he has spoken about being patient and steadfast, we have an expectation that he will tell us how to do this. It isn't just that he says, be patient. It's like, how do I do that? You know, when the world is falling down around my ears, how am I to be patient? Just a side note here. We use the NIV, and as a result, it it may in fact throw us, because in the NIV, uh, at the beginning of the book, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The King James has it differently. Instead of perseverance, it has, what the word is in Greek, patience. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. And let, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So at the beginning of the letter, right off the bat, he's talking about patience. But the NIV uses the word perseverance. And so we may not make the connection between chapter 1 chapter 5, between the introduction and the conclusion. Um, as I said last week, um, he uses the word patience seven times in verses 7 through 12. Now we come to prayer, and he uses it seven times in verses 13 through 18. And I would argue that the path to patience, to endurance, is the path of prayer. Follow along, if you would, as I read verses 13 to 18. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. 
This passage on prayer has four parts. We will look at the first three today, and Lord willing, we'll look at the final part dealing with Elijah next Sunday. There is the praying individual. Is anyone, in fact, in trouble? He should pray. Then there are the praying elders, where someone is sick and they call the elders to pray. Then you have the praying friends, where you confess and you pray together. And then finally, we have the praying prophet, Elijah, which again, the Lord willing, we'll look at next week. So let's look at the first three. First of all, the individual at prayer. This is a basic principle. He's told his readers to be patient. And how are they to do that? Is any of you in trouble? Okay. King James has, is any one of you afflicted? Yeah, you know, my boss isn't paying me. Are you in trouble? Then what should you do? You should pray. By the way, the word uh, suffering and trouble is the word that's also used in verse number 10. We looked at last week. Uh, Brothers, as an example, the patience in the face of suffering, trouble. So James is saying, is any one of you suffering? He or she should pray. And I think it's much more than sickness or illness. He's talking about difficult times. Are you having difficult times? You should pray. But then he he flips it around and he says, is anyone happy? This is not a word that we would expect from James. Joy, yes, we know that was right at the very beginning, considered pure joy. But happiness, Here, I think it means to be in good heart, not necessarily trouble-free, okay? But I think happy in spite of the circumstances, to be happy in spirit. And so he's basically both extremes. He's talking about, are you afflicted? Are you suffering? Are you in trouble? Or are you happy? It doesn't mean that things are going swimmingly well, but there is happiness, that you're you're light in spirit. And he tells us, in fact, what we should do. And what we should do is probably not what first comes to mind. Um, What is the natural response to difficulty, to suffering? I think anger, questioning, and perhaps even rebellion against God. Why has God let this happen It is, in fact, oftentimes an abandoning of what we should be doing, which is praying, the reading of scripture, meeting with God's people. On the other hand, what do we do when everything is going swimmingly well? We tend to become complacent, lazy, and basically the assumption is that we're doing okay and we're able to handle life on our own. In both cases, we abandon what we are supposed to be doing what God has called us to do. So James writes and says, listen, are you suffering? You should pray. And when you are good in heart, you should sing songs of praise. That is to say, neither suffering nor ease should find us without a suitable response as God's people. It's not as though, okay, if I'm suffering, if I'm happy... No, the middle ground, I'll be okay as a Christian, but these other extremes, and James like, no. You should either pray 
or you should sing songs of praise. What they do, by the way, is that they acknowledge a deep truth. Prayer tells us that God is sufficient to meet our needs. And praise acknowledges that God, in fact, sufficient to meet our needs, has in fact met our needs and even more. Both of them affirm the reality of who God is. These aren't, well, they can be, but these aren't merely mechanisms to keep people involved in activities. No, these are acknowledging the reality of who God is. You may be remember, you may remember that James has told us that we are in fact to not be hearers only, but doers of the word. I don't think James would be happy if he would learn that we would say, God is all sufficient. That's what I learned from this. And so I'm going to pray or I'm going to sing songs of praise. No. Whether you're at the negative end of the spectrum or the positive end or in between, it's always to be directed toward God, always to be directed toward him. And so are you in difficult circumstances? You should pray. And he seems to continue this thought, this vein in verses 14 through 15. Here he talks about the praying elders. Now we come to one of the more interesting parts of the book of James, about which there has been no small controversy uh, and differing opinions. James moves away from general suffering, if you wish, to the suffering of illness in verses 14 and 15. This is what I think James envisions. There's a member of the congregation who is sick. He or she summons the elders the leaders of the church, and the elders are to do two things. They, two things. They are to pray, and they are to anoint with oil in the name of the Lord. And then we are told that the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and if sin is involved in any way, the sick person will be forgiven. But let's, let's do some backstory here first, some background. First of all, James associates the healing ministry of prayer and anointing with the leadership of the church, the local church leaders. From the earliest times of the church, it was the custom to appoint leadership in the congregation. They're also known as overseers, elders or overseers. There are two words in Greek, you're probably familiar with this. Um, elders from presbyteroi, that's where Presbyterian comes from. Overseers from episkopoi, that's where Episcopalian comes from. I think elders points to qualifications. That is someone who is older, mature, just as a human being, as a man, is in fact, has that quality. But then the function of leadership is to be overseers. They are to watch out for the welfare of the congregation. In the rest of the New Testament, we are told that they are to guard and feed the flock of God. They are to follow the, the apostolic example of admonishing, that is, they are to correct people, and they are to teach and preach. Just a side note here, several things we learn here. There's nothing higher than local leadership. Um, 
in my opinion. We have elders in the congregation, and, and that's it. There's nothing above that, okay? And local leadership should, in fact, be plural, if possible. Not a one-man show. There should, in fact, be more than one elder. The second thing, backstory to this passage, is that miracles can be seen as a pattern found in the Bible, and they are exceptional rather than the norm. But I think that that may be, in fact, misleading. See, some people think miracles are, you know, God is on his throne, and then all of a sudden he decides to do something, and he, he does a miracle. You know, we pray, we plead, we cry out to him, and then he does a miracle. Um, otherwise, he just lets the system run on its own. A passage that I've found for a number of years to be very helpful is in John chapter 5, where Jesus heals the man at the pool of Siloam. Um, and he says, by the way, he heals on the Sabbath, so people are outraged that he did that. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. That is to say that God is always at work. So it's not when we pray, we ask for a miracle, like we know you're busy, you haven't been doing anything, but we now want you to do something. He's always been at work. Okay? We've talked about this before. We call it cosmic personalism. Uh, in the hymn, I Sing the Mighty Power of God, the moon shines full at his command and all the stars obey. You know, we're very mechanistic, I think, in our view of, of reality. It's like, well, we know why the moon is full because of the phase and all that kind of stuff. And no, God is the one who makes these hap things happen day after day. There are miracles that are found in Scripture, and they're usually in uh, great turning points in history, Moses and the Exodus, Elijah and the Elisha, when, in fact, the prophetic office is handed over from Elijah to Elisha, Jesus and the coming of the kingdom, the apostles and the founding of the church. There have been these spectacular things. But God is always at work. Okay? And I think we need to be careful that we don't somehow read that into the passage. We need to know that God is, in fact, always at work. Third thing, there's nothing said about the specialness of the oil, okay? That somehow it needs to be consecrated, that it needs to be holy oil. Um, James says nothing of the kind. Uh, the focus, in fact, is not on the oil as much as the prayer of the elders. And yet somehow the focus in the church over the centuries, in the third century, uh, it was the custom that the bishop, so that's higher than the, the local elders, would consecrate the oil. And then by the 10th century, the priest could, in fact, bless the anointing oil. By the 13th century, the Catholic Church ushers in the practice of extreme unction. Yeah, that's, that's not what James is talking about here at all. So, none of these have anything to do with this passage, and it is a corruption of the passage to somehow read it into that. The fourth thing... As we approach this passage about healing, we should not imagine that these special things we are asking God to do are in fact more important than what he does for us moment by moment, day by day. 
what we call his general and providential blessings. We can take a breath, we can inhale, we can exhale. That is God's providence in our lives. And we go after the spectacular and somehow we neglect that which God does for us day after day. There are some people who would argue that this passage is no longer applicable for us today because of modern medicine. That if James were alive today, he would say, is any one of you sick? He or she should call a doctor or go to urgent care or the emergency room. And for sure, in the New Testament, we do in fact find the use of medicine and medicinal skills. The Samaritan, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, he found a man who had been ambushed and he applied oil and wine to the man's wounds. The wine is to cleanse the wound and oil is in fact to soothe the wounds. Um, Paul speaks of Luke, the beloved physician. Luke was a physician and he wrote two books of the New Testament, the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts. Uh, Timothy was urged, and apparently Timothy had stomach issues, frequent illnesses, to add a little wine to his diet. Paul writes of Trophimus, who is left behind at Miletus because he was ill. And one might ask, why didn't Paul heal him? In our day, the abundance and the availability, the effectiveness of medicine is something that is a wonderful gift from God. It is an, just a magnificent illustration of his goodness. And we should never cease giving thanks. At the same time, particularly in light of verse number 13, we should refer all of life's experiences to the one God from whom they come. So we should praise God in light of good health or when our health is restored, we should pray in times of difficulty. So when we go to the doctor, our eyes should be on the Lord. When we take something for pain, for example, we should acknowledge that he is the Lord who makes it works, makes it work. You remember James wrote in chapter one, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. There is very much a spiritual dimension to healing, something that we too easily forget. At no time when we approach the doctor should we in fact do so without approaching God. However, there are times when a special approach to God will seem right. And this is what James is talking about in this passage. So what happens here? The story is that there's a person who is sick and he makes a request, calls for the elders. The elders in their ministry, they come and they pray and they anoint the person and the person uh, is it's seemingly healed. So, the illness in question here isn't a small deal, I would argue. It isn't sort of like a common cold. Uh, it's something that perhaps has been ongoing for a while. We're not given details, so I don't want to read too much into it. But the elders go to the person. The person doesn't go to the elders, which would seem to indicate that he or she is not physically strong enough to go to the elders. The elders come to the person. Um, it is the elders who do the praying. 
which if you think about it, is really somewhat, because in verse number 13, James just said, are you in trouble? Are you suffering? You should pray. But here in verses 14 and 15, it is the elders who pray. And it is the faith of the elders that is exercised that in fact brings about the healing. The prayer offered in faith by the elders, okay, they're the ones praying. So it isn't the person saying, I hope I have enough faith. It is in fact, he or she calls the elders and the elders in their faith pray and anoint the person. They pray over the sick person. I don't want to read too much into this, that somehow the person is bedridden. That's why they're praying over him. Not necessarily, but they in fact pray over this person that God would heal them. The person is ill, but the person is conscious, just to point out. Um, Otherwise, how could he or she call for the elders to come? So James is not talking about extreme unction, a rite in which the, you know, the elders somehow anoint the person even though they don't have any clue as to what's going on. All that's interesting, but the big question is, what about the statement, if he has sinned, he will be forgiven? I would offer three possibilities. It is possible that on his sickbed, the person becomes aware that the sickness is, in fact, a divine visitation, that this is something that God is doing in their life because of some personal sin. The Bible is very clear about this, that not every sickness is the direct result of sin. Okay? It does teach, though, that there are times in which illness or sickness is brought by God on a person, in a sense, to get them, get their attention. Um, the passage that I mentioned earlier in John chapter 5 when he healed the man at the pool uh, Jesus said to him stop sinning or something worse may happen to you which would seem to indicate that the reason the man was paralyzed and was there by the pool of Siloam was because of some sin in his life and Jesus said don't do that again okay Don't go back to that. Um, So that's the first possibility. The second is not excluding it, but in fact, the time of illness may be a time of quiet self-examination. And there may be things that the person has done in the past that they had quite forgotten about, and it has come to their awareness through the illness that this is something that I have not confessed, something I've not dealt with, and so I want the elders to come and pray over me and to anoint me with oil. The third possibility is that the sick person may realize that healing involves the whole person. It isn't just his or her body that needs to be healed, but the relationship with God. Perhaps they have gone astray, there's something that has happened between them and God, And so the elders have come. Yes, the physical ailment is a sign that something is wrong. But when it says he will be healed, I don't think it's necessarily a physical healing. It it may include that. But in fact, I think it's also a a restoration of a person's relationship with God. So the elders are 
to pray over the sick. They are to anoint with oil in the name of the Lord. Are they to do anything else? We're not told that they are. Okay? We're not told that the sick person, let's say that there is sin in his or her life, that they, this person says to the elders, here, let me confess my sin or my sins to you. That's not there. Uh, and the elders are not to press them. Is there sin in your life? Is this why this has happened to you? Not at all. Um, they are to pray in faith. This expression, the prayer of faith, is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. Okay? And in fact, the word that he uses is a different word for prayer than he's been using. It is almost as though it's to sort of grab the reader's attention to say, this is something important, the prayer of faith. Now, he says, you know, the prayer of faith, you know, the Lord will raise him up. And so we have an expectation that if somebody is sick, they call the elders, the elders pray and anoint the person that they're guaranteed that they will recover. We have a number of passages like that in the New Testament that... Um, Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. In Matthew 18, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. In John 14, 14, you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Um, these passages have been much abused by people who basically see God as, I don't know, a great vending machine in the sky. And then we pray and he will, you know, if you put in the right coins, the right prayers, he must give you what you ask for. As I said, the prayer offered in faith, the prayer of faith is not found anywhere else in scripture. And James was quite good in his Greek. And so he knew exactly what he was doing. Um, he's already written about prayer, though, hasn't he? In the context of being double-minded, that if you ask God, you should not doubt. That is, believe and not believe at the same time. He's also talked about you have not because you ask not, and then you ask, but it's for your own self-gratification. And that's why God does not answer your prayers. Here at verse number 13, he says, if, is any one of you in trouble, he should pray. But what does the rest of the New Testament say about prayer? All prayer must have an aspect of faith. Hebrews eleven six. Anyone that comes to him must believe that he exists. Mark 9. We have the story of the father whose son was demon-possessed. And he said to Jesus, If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus says, If you can, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. There is faith and there is imperfect faith. The reality is, more often than not, we don't know how to pray. We don't know what we should pray for. Paul tells us in Romans 8, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. We're also told about 
prayer that God is not limited by our faith. I only have a little faith, so I don't know if God can answer my prayers. Uh, a wonderful benediction in Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. Your faith may be small, but God can do more than that. But the final thing I would say about prayer here is that ultimately all prayer is a prayer of rest. That is to say, we rest in God. We may struggle back and forth, just struggle with him like Jacob with the angel. But at the end of the day, if we continue in prayer, we rest in God. We trust him that he will do what is best. He has wisdom. He knows what is best. So how does this tie in? The prayer of faith rests in God's will. It does not claim a spirit of confidence. We're going to heal this person. In fact, they rest in God. and They are committed to the will of God. Again, the promise. What about the promise that God will, in fact, make the sick person well? The Lord will raise him up. Um, we, also, we tend to forget he will be forgiven if he has sinned. I would argue that the focus in this passage is not about the illness of the person, his physical health, but rather his relationship with God. And I know that that sounds like a cop-out. That you're like, oh, so if, if they don't get healed, then God really can't do it or they didn't do it right. Um, but let me ask you, what is more important, uh, physical health or spiritual health? For our bodies to be what we want them to be or for our relationship to God to be what it should be? For all the difficulties we may have with this passage, one thing comes through rather loudly and clearly. Prayer is a powerful thing. We will see that, the Lord willing, next week with Elijah and his prayers. In verse number 15, we are told that the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. In verse 16, which we'll look at in a minute, uh, pray for each other that you may be healed. And then in verse number 16, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Prayer doesn't simply belong to the elders. It's not just the jurisdiction of the elders because James starts out with, are you in trouble? Are you suffering? Are you afflicted? You should pray. So it's not just the elders. And it shouldn't be confined to issues of illness. It is, in fact, our relationship with God at stake. Okay, quickly, the last, the third thing here is friends who are praying. Verse 16, the first part of it. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Um, I think James has something specific in mind here. And I think we need to be careful to understand what he's trying to say. Some have argued that there may be times in a person's life, a believer's life, where he or she is burdened by a particular sin. And so they seek out a brother or a sister, a close friend, and unburden or say to this person, I am struggling with this sin. Will you pray with me? Will you pray for me with regard to this? And in prayer... 
we're told in Galatians 6 that we're to bear each other's burdens. The friend prays for this person for deliverance, for cleansing, for healing. Um, I think that this is allowable, but I don't think this is what James is talking about. We are not commanded in scripture that we are to confess our sins to each other. And it is not what James is talking about here. He's not talking about sort of a congregational meeting where people get up and say, this is my sin, pray for me. Um, to do so is not, can't, you, you can do that if you want, but that's not what James is talking about here. I would actually argue it's not very biblical. And it doesn't say that we are to confess our sins to God in each other's presence, but rather we are to confess our sins to one another. And I would say to you that when we look at confession in the Gospels, particularly in the teaching of Jesus, you confess your sin to someone you've sinned against. If I've sinned against person A, then I need to confess that to the person A, and person A should pray for me. And if illness has resulted, healing. But what about healing in the relationship? What about healing in the relationship with God? Um, even when a person is to confess their sins publicly in Matthew 18, it is because that person has sinned against the congregation. And so they confess to those that they have sinned against. So it isn't like going to confessional and confessing your sins. It is people that you have sinned against. And ultimately, all confession is directed toward God. God says, don't do this, and I've done it. It says I should not gossip, and I've gossiped. I've said things about you that were maybe true, but not true, and spread it around, and I confess that to you. I am sorry. Would you pray with me? And by God's grace, the relationship would be healed. This is not like some communist re-education camp where people get up and confess what they've done wrong. And I mean, the Cultural Revolution in China was filled with this. Uh, it's not what James is talking about. If you've sinned against someone, you need to go to that person, confess, and pray together. Throughout this letter, James has been concerned about fellowship. Breaches in the fellowship, chapter 4. There are wars, there are fightings. Yeah, that's not the way. A poor brother comes into the congregation and you treat him like dirt. Here, sit at my feet. James is so practical and he wants, in fact, for whatever breaches there might be in the congregation to be healed. But for that to happen, there has to be repentance. I have sinned against you, my brother or my sister. Okay? Um, that's hard. <laughs> Um, it re it's the path of humility to say, I have done wrong, and I confess it to you. There's also to be reconciliation. Person, The person against whom I've sinned may in fact be really genuinely hurt. And for me to say, I'm sorry for what I've done is like, that's it? You're, you're going to say you're sorry? There has to be a spirit of reconciliation. It has to be prompt and we should not hesitate. 
Pride makes it difficult for us to confess. Pride makes it difficult for us to accept the confession of another person because we've been wronged. So what's the answer? Prayer. My pride wants to keep me from confessing to you that I have wronged you. Pride keeps you from not wanting to accept what I have said in good faith. We need to pray. As brothers, as sisters, we need to go to God our Father and deal with this matter. And if we do that, then in fact the breach may be healed. And this is what James wants more than anything else. So, quickly, to wrap this up. Should we pray when we are in trouble? Absolutely. Should we pray when we get sick? Yes, we should. Is all sickness the result of sin, personal sin? No, it is not. Um, I'm reminded of the story in John chapter 9. As he went along, Jesus went along, he saw a man who was blind from birth. The disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And in fact, illness may be the result of God working in our lives that it might point us to God. It is an amazing statement that Jesus made and we should take it to heart. Can sickness be the result of sin? Yes, it can. And as a result, self-examination is in order. Is it okay to pray for healing, even supernatural healing, miraculous healing? Yes, it is. Is there a time to call the elders? There may be. Um, I think James would be upset if we miss what he's getting to. In every aspect of our experience, on the bad days, the bad moments, we should pray. and the good moments, we should sing songs of praise. There is no point in our life in which we can say, I've got this, I've got this covered, I'm okay. If I'm in trouble, I'll, I'll let you know. We are to be patient but we are to be prayerful. And when James tells us to stand firm, you know, it's not like pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do this, just stand firm. No, we are to be people of prayer. Patience and prayer go together. Let's pray together. Our Father, prayer is such a wonderful gift. One that we either underutilize or we abuse. Seeing it for our own benefit. The reality is we are to recognize that you are the source of all things. We're to look to you. Particularly in difficult times when the temptation is to grumble, to lose heart, to question your actions in our lives. But in 
happiness, we are to sing songs of praise. There is no point in our life in which you are not to be addressed, that we are not to look to you. Father of all grace, God of all love, may we look to you in difficult times as well as good times. Good times may we sing songs of praise, praising you for who you are and what you've done. And in difficult times, not lose heart, but remember that you are our Father who loves us dearly. And may we not forget that prayer is powerful. It is communication with the creator of the universe. It is something that is commanded, something we should do. I thank you for bringing us together today. We pray for those that aren't with us. Uh, wherever they are, we know that you are there with them. And by your grace, we pray that we'll see them next Sunday. As we walk through the world in this coming week, may we have a sense of your presence, and not just in the big things, but in the everyday mundane things. You are right there with us. Thank you for loving us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.